Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace a podcast that highlights the role of women peacebuilders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co-founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace. Salam from the Philippines. I am Amina Rasul from the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, greeting you on She Talks Peace. And I'm Dina Zaman of Iman Research Malaysia. Saying hello from Kuala Lumpur. Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in to She Talks Peace again. How are you, Dina? How are your doctoral studies coming along? Well, I took a two-week course to prep up. I haven't paid my school fees yet. Uh, probably will do a last-minute thing, but uh, slowly, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing a part-time thing. There's no way I can work full-time and do a full-time PhD. But uh, yeah, so, you know, it's a new journey. But what about you, Amina? How's the situation in Manila? Ah, same old, same old. COVID, politics, right. and Afghanistan. But yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, Dina, uh, what I am a little bit worried about now is the situation of my relatives in Tawi-Tawi. That's the oh. province that's closest to Sabah. Okay. And uh, the border between... Tawi-Tawi and Sabah is extremely porous. It's open seas. And we don't oh. really have the wherewithal, the equipment, the manpower to patrol the seas and prevent the entry or exit of COVID-affected victims or victims of uh, illegal activities like uh, drug trafficking and, and human trafficking. And it's extremely worrisome. But, you know, speaking about trafficking, you know, I got personally involved in wow. um, okay. working on human trafficking, or as the Americans put it, trafficking in persons. Um, All right. Because of our Filipina guest today, you know, many years ago, she told me that women migrants from uh, Muslim Mindanao was yeah. on the rise. And right. uh, so was uh, abuse. And, you know, we have got like one of the largest contingents of workers abroad, yeah. of uh, migrant workers abroad. Recently, I, I read a news item about right. a Philippine domestic worker in Hong Kong who was sexually abused by her employer. Yeah. 
And uh, she reported it to the police and she's actually filed a case against the police because uh -huh. they rejected the idea that it was a human, uh, that she was a victim of human trafficking. So, you know, there are like what, yeah. 350,000 domestic workers in Hong Kong, most of them from the right. Philippines and Indonesia. No Malaysians, thank goodness. And uh, their their cases uh, their cases are really very vulnerable to uh, exploitation, to sexual abuse, and um, this is the thing. You know, the Americans have this uh, regular report monitoring uh, trafficking yeah. in uh, in persons, and for 2021. The yeah. American government uh, said that Hong Kong was not doing enough to take care of uh, the migrant right. workers and the traffic victims. So they're on CARE 2 watch list with, uh, together with Belarus and Thailand. Thailand. But uh -huh. Dina, yeah. they also said that Malaysia is uh, is in danger and malaysia's right. predominant human trafficking crime is in forced labor i never knew that dina so oh yeah the, so, so the u.s state department has downgraded malaysia to the worst tier tier three in its uh in its annual report i never really thought that malaysia as progressive as as we we Filipinos think Malaysia is, would have that kind of a situation? You know, Malaysia, right, as you say, a lot of people say that we're a success story in Southeast Asia. Yeah. I don't de deny that we're probably good at some things, but I think in the last five, ten years, and especially COVID, it's really exposed to the gaps, to the human rights abuses that we actually have in mm -hmm. Malaysia. When you talk about forced labor, okay, one, we do share similarities with Tawi-Tawi. We have porous mm. borders when you talk yeah. about Thailand, Malaysia, Langkawi, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the, another thing is that I think the reason why, you know, we, we don't look at human rights abuses towards forced labor, towards domestic workers is because I think like a lot of Southeast Asian countries in Malaysia, right, we've always been you know, a little bit more successful than others. And we also have this master-slave mentality. So we mm. look at forced labor at domestic workers as, okay, you're a servant, mm -hmm. so you're not someone that we need to, you know, we pay your, 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 your fees, your wages, and that's enough. That's the most. And then when you also look at how these domestic workers come into Malaysia, there are legitimate agencies that bring yeah. in the workers in, right? But they're also illegitimate ones. And mm. also a lot of Indonesian workers, right, who come into the country illegally because people are poor. People are desperate, you right. know. And when you're desperate, you don't think clearly as to whether this country or that island has any human rights abuses. You just want money to feed your family. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I know that we have a lot of human rights uh, groups in Malaysia. I mean, you interviewed Mahi the other day, right? Uh, they are constantly on the ground trying to save, but it's not easy also when it's not just our enforcement agencies, but mm -hmm. also when our communities still think that labor, you know, domestic workers or migrant workers are 
you know, you're just, you know, disposable. Okay, you can't eat. I kick you out. I'll fire. You can run away. I'll get someone else. They'll all be this. But, you know, I think the best, right, to talk about this would be two of our guests today. Uh, I'm very excited. We are, fi- we are having our very first gentleman yeah. represent. You know, Milestone. Uh, the gender, but also the work that he does. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so, over to you, Amina. Yep, it's going to be quite uh, uh, refreshing having our yes. our Malaysian guest today. Yes, well, yes. our Filipina guest is an, an old friend. Uh-huh. Susan Ople is a well-known overseas migrant workers advocate. And right. she heads the Blast F. Ople Policy Center and Training Institute. It's a nonprofit organization that's known to help distressed uh, Filipino workers um, abroad. And uh, she's been doing this for the last 17 years. Now, Dina, the center is named after her distinguished father, the late former foreign secretary and former Senator Blas Ople, who had also held the post of labor minister for, you know, for a long time. Senator Ople was a labor leader, and I'm wondering whether he passed those genes to, to Susan. And he was the strongest champion of workers uh, during his time. Recently, Toots, for all the work that she's done championing uh, migrant workers and on human trafficking, was appointed to the Board of Trustees of the United Nations Trust Fund for Victims of Human Trafficking. And she will be the first Filipino appointed to that position. So I'm sure our Malaysian guest would want to uh, bend Susan's ears about this. In 2013, Toots was um, hailed by the U.S. State Department as one of its trafficking in persons heroes in its uh, annual report. And then in 2010, she was the first Filipino to receive the Alumni Achievement Award from the Kennedy School of Government for her fight against human trafficking. So that's Toots from Manila. And how about our Malaysian friend? Well, Adrian Pereira is a friend. I've seen him around. I think he we met briefly when the Iman Research did... Uh, I think one project we met briefly, but uh, I actually enjoy reading his Facebook posts because he makes <laughs> human rights issues really funny. I mean, Adrian by nature is a very jovial person, and I think you need that when you do this kind of intense human rights work. So Adrian Pereira is the executive director of the North-South Initiative, uh, a youth-led initiative based in Malaysia to help bridge the solidarity divide between the North and South in terms of human rights and social justice. So the North and South here is defined beyond a traditional developed versus developing sense as we find out that inequality and justice are complex matters that require a more holistic approach between the North and South and among the South. Uh, I believe this is what we're talking about, the South of Thailand. The Inspiration came from one of the areas which uh, the North-South Initiative is engaging with, uh, with the Patani youth. Patani is located at the top, uh, north of Malaysia and south of Thailand. So this is the why the initiative is called that. So besides 
peace building advocacy in Petani. They also do empowerment advocacy work uh, among, you know, with uh, marginalized groups such as indigenous people, students, West Papuan youth, migrant workers, refugees, farmers network, interfaith actors, and other forgotten minorities who need support. So that's a lot that Adrian does. And he's also very, very involved with the Catholic Church, I believe, because he believes that there is an intersection with human rights work, activism, and religion. Yeah. So welcome, Adrian, and welcome, Susan. Welcome to She Talks Peace. And now, let me ask uh, Susan or Toots and Adrian, how did you get involved in the advocacy of, of uh, human trafficking? Let's, let's start with Toots. Um, yeah, hello. And, uh, and I'm really honored to be part of uh, She Talks Peace. And hello to Adrian. I'm so interested to hear about his work as well. Um, it, it was... 2006, um, we, um, we've had the Opless Center up and running for two years. Uh, we started in 2004. And then um, I received a call. It was around past midnight. Um, somehow, an OFW, a domestic worker in Syria, um, got a hold of my number. And um, she was crying. And she was speaking from inside the bathroom. Ooh. And uh, she said that she couldn't take it anymore. She, Syrian emperors were, you know, very abusive. She would, when, when the employers would tell her to go to the market, she would um, buy some bread so she has something to eat, put it oh, in wow. a plastic bag, and then... Um, dig, dig uh, in the garden a hole My where goodness. she can, you know, put in that plastic bag so that when the employers are away, she could go out and, and eat. And she would sometimes eat in the bathroom so there's no evidence. So that was my introduction to, to slavery. And oh my we didn't have any embassy in Syria at the time. When I told the Department of Foreign Affairs about this case, um, they they said that uh, they weren't really aware of how many Filipinos were there in Syria. Um, so they had to get the, the embassy in Lebanon to send a team. So the labor attaché from Lebanon flew in, looked for her, um, spoke with the, with the, with the government and... and um, Basically, um, they were able to extract her and bring her home. Mm -hmm. But by then, my number, my personal number, had circulated around <laughs> the community. So I was getting more and more calls. And then um, because I was also pounding the embassy and our government, Amina, at that time, mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. they found out that there were actually... I, I think their initial estimate was that there were just uh, 2,000 or just not not that huge uh, number of Filipinos. And then they opened the embassy and they found out it was 16,000. That's, that, that's the number of Filipino women, most yeah, of yeah. whom were working in Syria as domestic 
workers. So um, that was my introduction. And from then on, it became our cause and our mission at the Opless Center to help as many trafficked women as we can. In fact, we were able to get a conviction in Malaysia against mm. a uh, against a Malaysian couple who poured um, um, who scalded their domestic worker with boiling cooking oil. Oh my goodness! Um, thankfully, we were able to win that case, and she's home now, and she's working for us. That's great, dudes. You know, how about you, Adrian? How how do you get involved in championing uh, the you know anti-human trafficking? Uh, yeah, so thanks for having me on board. My story goes a bit back to my uh, younger days uh, where I grew up in a, what we can call a matriarchal family. Mm. And from the age of seven and eight, my mom used to bring me along for her charity work. And the place where I grew up was a, was a plantation town, a very small plantation town. And that's where I started to observe the different forms of exploitation and the poverty experienced by both uh, Malaysians and migrants. Uh, this was in the 80s. And that already started or helped me to start asking some critical questions. And uh, fast forward to, to today, uh, about 10 years ago, exactly 10 years ago, uh, me and friends decided to set up the North-South Initiative and uh, it's actually continuing the the student activism days of our university. And, you know, similar to, to what Susan shared, we suddenly started to get cases. Friends from different countries heard about us and they started um, giving us cases of uh, human trafficking, abusers, mm-hmm. and, and we took it up very organically. So... To be honest, the North-South Initiative, or even myself, uh, we didn't like plan to be involved in this sector. But when the grassroots and the communities call us, we take it as a mission, and and that's where we are today. Yeah, that's really quite interesting to see two sides of the coin, right, Dina? The Philippines is the labor sending and right. abused, and Malaysia is the labor receiving and yes. i hate to say it tina abuser if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let's be... <laughs> we'll have to be very delicate about this. So, Susan, Adrian, I mean, you've given us an overview, but could you give us an overview of the situation of human trafficking and migrant worker issues in both your countries and how they impact Southeast Asia? Um, should I start? Sure, please. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Dina, uh, human trafficking is a major concern. Even if we have this pandemic, we continue to receive uh, requests for assistance from um, domestic workers, especially in the Middle East, who encounter abusive and exploitative conditions. So one would think that with the pandemic, that the cases would taper off. But actually, the pandemic has, and I think it continues to serve as yeah. a, like a, a shield or mm-hmm. it's even like a face mask, you know, you put mm-hmm. it on and you don't really know if, that person is already um, crying or what her state of mind is. It's, it's like, it's very deceptive in that case because a lot of our embassies are, just like our government here in the Philippines, a lot of our embassies are really focused on repatriation yeah. of stranded Filipinos. They, the, the human trafficking lens has disappeared or has been, you know, has blended into this very serious problem of the pandemic. Right, and right. reintegration services are, are also have fallen back um, because they're now focused really on just quarantine and then um, getting these uh, um, overseas workers home to their provinces. So it's very difficult right now to say what level has the problem risen to or if it has dissipated, deployment has gone down by, I think, 60 to 80 percent, mm-hmm. at least as far as the Philippines is concerned. But my concern as a, a human rights and a migrant workers' rights advocate is that once we start opening the door again to overseas work, I think the people now, especially our women workers, are more desperate to yeah. earn Yes. And then there are also human trafficking syndicates that are just as desperate to profit mm-hmm. from other people's misery. So that's a, a huge concern for us. Yeah. And what about Malaysia, Adrian? Adrian? Yeah. So if you look at the Southeast Asian region or let's use uh, ASEAN uh, per se, um, I think over the last 20 to 30 years, it has been building itself to a, a very powerful um, economic powerhouse, uh, but also become the uh, regional focus on security matters. Mm-hmm. And and uh, as it starts to grow, you can see different governments trying its best to get ASEAN on board for free trade agreements and uh, and all kinds of business uh, business deals. The the migrant worker for the last twenty to thirty years has become a victim of forced uh, forced labor trafficking and i mean we can go into the definitions but you know at the end of the day it's still the dignity of someone who's trying to 
you know, just make a better life for themselves uh, to avoid being a victim of, of exploitation. That line between looking for a, a livelihood or a better life and exploitation is still very blurred. And sometimes what uh, the government in Malaysia does, it's, um, it's, it doesn't really uh, look into the structural problems that cause trafficking, yeah. but more responding to, okay, let's rescue this person, let's provide a shelter. But because the government in Malaysia has been depending on the, the labor for 20 to 30 years um, in terms of exploiting to, to, you know, to build the economy. So that, that is a big question that we are still struggling. I don't see any solutions in the near future. And actually, if you look at the TIP report uh, by mm-hmm. the Americans, yeah. um, I mean, you can see the Southeast Asian countries. Uh, in I think it's only Singapore and Philippines, which are on tier one, and mm-hmm. Indonesia and Laos on tier two. Mm-hmm. The other six are either on tier two watch list or tier three, including <laughs> yeah. Malaysia. Thailand is tier two watch list, same as Malaysia. Yeah. And the International Trade Union Confederation also came up with their report, mm-hmm. uh, which also places Malaysia in their uh, in their second last ranking. Okay. So you can see that you know there's enough anecdotal and evidence based. Act- analysis to to show that you know they, they just no political will to solve this problem adrian you mentioned security considerations yeah. earlier and i'm curious to go a little bit more into that we know that in many areas of migrant workers where abuse is is high conditions are bad indoctrination into extremist thoughts is also yeah. present and and growing and I think that's also happening in in our labor camps, uh, say in in Sabah, right? Uh, you've got hundreds of thousands of undocumented Filipinos yeah. there who have lived there for generations and are treated badly by by state. And I was just wondering, you know, if you could share your frustration in getting government to act on 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 these root issues you know it's it's nice that you give give you know some housing for the abused workers but the underlying issues are there and that's a very serious security threat i mean is your government kind of short sighted about this yeah so the the design the whole design of the labor migration uh, system in malaysia is, has been highly securitized but uh, that's the irony. Mm. The security is more for the national uh, nationalistic, mm-hmm. not the human security per se. Right. And uh, in Malaysia, we don't have, over the last 20 to 30 years, the culture of dialogue. So whenever there's a conflict, I remember this very clearly uh, 20 years ago when even basic questions of racism, the government would say, no, you can't talk about this. We are not ready. And... Just imagine if you are a foreigner and you face certain difficulties and trouble in your life and, and you don't have the platform to respond or dialogue, what would you then resort to? So I, I see that lack of, of safe spaces to, to address certain issues as a, as a potential threat to human security in uh, not just labor, but in, in society in general. So 
from the design of the labor migration system to to not having the social infrastructure to deal with even basic problems. I think Malaysia is a ticking time bomb, and I think it's good we we be honest with ourselves and put it on the table. Adrian, I have a question. You mentioned just now about how we are not looking at structural problems. You know, we are looking at other things. Could you just elaborate on that? What are, you know? Could you just tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. So the uh, if you look at in terms of trafficking and and yeah. labor, the primary bodies that actually manage this is the Home Affairs Ministry. Right. So the 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 very nature of securitizing and militarizing our borders uh, plays a yeah. big role, and okay. and this is not taken into consideration when it comes to labor migration and human trafficking. Oh. And mm-hmm. and the the response has been more in damage control or firefighting rather than looking at the structural right. systems that lead uh, a migrant uh, into forced labor and trafficking conditions. So I know for a fact uh, we have very weak uh, solutions when it comes to the global supply chain. It's not that we don't have the tools; it's just mm-hmm. that we don't have the political will to to address yeah. these issues. So yeah. to compensate that. The best thing we can do is okay, get a shelter ready, uh, ah. strengthen the post victimization processes. Which I, I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong, mm-hmm. but they totally leave out uh, elements of of preventive, or they marginalize, you know, or to very minimal level include uh, preventive measures and uh, you know uh, restructuring the whole economic uh, and labor. Uh, uh, migration system. Yeah. What about you, Toots? What are your frustrations uh, working with with governments and uh, and their policies and programs on protecting our workers from from trafficking? Yeah, I think one of my frustrations is that everyone gets to know who the victim is or was. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you see it uh, portrayed in the news, it's usually about what happened to the victim. We never get to see the faces mm. of the abusive oh, employers yeah. or or the human traffickers. Their identities are not really for them to like. If there's an, a household in the Middle East where the father was abusive, they can still apply and get a a domestic worker from right. Philippines or from Indonesia, mm-hmm. from Myanmar, it will be the son or the or the wife who will mm-hmm. apply for the job. Mm-hmm. And because we don't look really at the um, residence, um, we just look at the name of the employer right. and, and then that name gets blacklisted. We really don't know if if that employer has an extended family that shares the same horrific value system. Yeah. So that's one. Another is the length of right. getting a case uh, prosecuted. Oh, it yeah. takes years. In the oh, case yeah. of uh, the case that I mentioned earlier, which happened in Malaysia, I, I think that took three years. Yeah, two to three years, and and that's even considered fast. I mean, in the <laughs> Philippines. I had a case, yeah, where it really took so many years. And then we also handled a case wherein it was the prosecutor who was telling the 
the victim to just settle. Oh dear. Because it will take so long, so just settle. And you know, that's not the kind of message that we want to impart. And and we do want justice to be meaningful in the real sense of the word. It's not just money. You know, when you've been raped or you've been starved uh, to near death, you know, Mm -hmm. and then you're being asked by some people in government to just settle, that's really difficult to take. But we have encountered some cases. But in the brighter side, Yes, in the brighter, brighter side. side. Yes, because we always try to look for the <laughs> for the brighter <laughs> side of things. There, there is, you know, a there are a lot of conversations going on on how to promote ethical recruitment, even of domestic workers. And we hope that uh, through your podcast and also with the help of uh, Dina and, and and Adrian here in Malaysia. Perhaps we can get a more bilateral conversation going because really most of the domestic workers go through legitimate agencies. But these agencies have the ultimate um, responsibility to make sure that they get the best employers and that these employers are aware about uh, human rights and, and the need to respect the human dignity of a person. But um, that, that takes a lot of education, public awareness, networking, uh, not just between governments, but also between and among civil society groups. And political will. So Here's, here's yeah. an idea, Toots. Because you need influential people in government to, to be able to do this. So how about you run again for Senate? Dina and Adrian run for parliament, and then we're going to have real advocates <laughs> who will help design policy. How about it, Toots, Adrian? Uh, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, so <coughs> I think one of. Go these... ahead, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so from my perspective, uh, uh, being a grassroots activist um, which uh, took up trafficking in a very organic manner. So I'm, I'm quite clear about the role that I would play and having that certain autonomy mm-hmm. as compared to a politician to get the job done. The, the problem in the Malaysian context is uh, the, the basic fundamental democracy ecosystem has not matured yeah. as much as, say, Philippines mm-hmm. or Indonesia. Uh, and I was living in in Manila. I was in Las Piñas for three years. So I was Whoa. observing. And also Mindanao, I managed to do my traveling and observing. You know how even to the barangay level, mm-hmm. you have elections. And in Malaysia, we do not have that degree of democracy. No. So no. Mm-hmm. even if I were to, you know, to participate in the political system here, I know I would be marginalized. And uh, I think my role as a human rights a grassroots-centric activist would would actually help me uh, at least understand and bring the voices of the grassroots. And then hopefully one day when the political system matures a bit more, we can mm-hmm. play a role. And mm-hmm. I and I but but I do believe they are. It is connected. Uh, the politicians have a very strong role to play mm-hmm. uh, in in stopping human trafficking. And we have had a few. 
champions in parliament who have uh, taken up the issue and voiced out. So uh, for until there are more people to support the reforms, uh, we we still kind of depend on them. But uh, I want to raise one point about the the feminization of uh, certain jobs in Malaysia. Right. The domestic work in Malaysia, when when we talk to some of them, it's it's like it's almost like a state endorsed trafficking. And for me, uh, it's well designed to keep that few women locked up in a house mm-hmm. in a what we call indentured servitude condition. And mm. you know they are struggling to pay back loans back home. Right in Manila, I I remember talking to people. I I would see uh, men drinking beer at twelve o'clock outside their home, and mm. I tried to ask my neighbor, "How is that possible? Why are they not at work?" And they would say, "Yeah, they are, they send their daughters abroad to to do the to, to do work and uphold their family mm-hmm. income." And I was shocked. And and you can see a system in both the sending and receiving countries yeah. that that you know perpetrate this this kind of uh, of labor practices. It's not just the in the global supply chain, but also in the domestic work. So we need to to look at a um, a form of uh, gender responsive for or gender in- inclusive uh, solution to the system, uh, the systemic reform. And uh, also, when we talk to, I remember talking to our Cambodian uh, domestic workers, um, and they said uh, we we come from abusive families uh, that that pushes or forces them to migrate. So mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a very complex situation. We need more solidarity, more ideas, uh, more grassroots leaders to come uh, to the front and explain what's exactly going on. Yeah, it sounds sounds like the Philippines as well, right, dudes? Yeah. Yes, and, and I agree with Adrian. And it, it has become a generational thing. If your mm-hmm. mom uh, leaves as an OFW, then somehow, some, some, somewhere down the line, a, a, a daughter or a, a niece would also believe you're sending out more women now than, mm-hmm. than uh, male um, migrant workers. So it is a fact. And yet, we have yet to apply across the board uh, a gender-sensitive lens um, from prevention to reintegration. And that's something that all stakeholders should need to work together. Adrian, Susan, you know, uh, I would like to know, and I think Amina also, we will be both having talking about now that we have the fall of Afghanistan, right? People are leaving by the droves. Do you see this, you know, do you see an influx of refugees coming to both our countries? Do you see an impact of the fall of Kabul on our countries? Or do you think it's just two separate things? Adrian? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the whole labor migration and trafficking is uh, because there's some, some needs that are not fulfilled uh, back home. And you know it's it's very difficult for people to make that choice to leave, uh, uh, even for labor issues. What more? What more if there's a conflict as as critical as what's happening in in Afghanistan? Now I, I'll be very careful to use terms like influx because uh, the we have seen how the right wing mm-hmm. yeah. 
politicians yes. have used that mm-hmm. to, to you know to to close borders or right. tighten borders. Uh, I think Malaysia, in one sense, we have a history of positively yes. managing you know uh, people from countries of conflict, and we of course also involved have been involved uh, as a country in in conflict resolution. Uh, but now this is a, a situation where we need to be kind. Uh, we need to ensure that people have safe access. We already, I think Malaysia already hosts around 2,000 plus, um, I think 2,600 uh, Afghanistan refugees. We should be kinder and and welcome them until they are safe. But knowing Malaysia with the corruption, uh, I think we also need to to be fair to those who think of Malaysia that they should know that Malaysia is not a kind place to refugees at this current point of time. Yes, so, I agree. So uh, I think people need to know the bigger picture before making choices. But you know, refugees in that in that rush to to save their families may may not have enough uh, information to make such decisions. Yeah. Right. Susan. Yes, you know. The Philippines is known for its big heart. Um, we offered refuge to um, those affected by the Holocaust. We also offered, uh, we, we even sheltered uh, in one of the provinces, refugees from Vietnam. So with the situation in Afghanistan, I wasn't surprised that the presidential spokesperson said that um, the, the Philippines is open to accepting refugees from from Afghanistan, um, my only concern is really um, how can we manage to do that uh, at this time when, uh, you know, Delta variant is here, the surge is real. Right. Even our OFWs cannot come come home. Mm-hmm. There's a ceiling, there's a cap, and, and uh, we they, they have to cancel their bookings several times. Uh, just to wait uh, for the opportunity to come home. So the intention to help them is real, and um, it's it's really heartbreaking to see the Afghan men and women, and especially the children, um, suffering in this way. But um, you know, it has to be a whole of world approach. It cannot be one one country or two countries alone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Yep, you're, you're absolutely right about that, Toots. But um, I just hope that the U.S. government and their allies 
have really been, or at least the, the deadline is approaching soon, right? It's tonight. And I hope that they are able to um, bring out as many as they can. And they did promise to continue working with the Afghanistan government to bring out uh, not just American citizens, but those who want to leave and, and have those special visa status. But Toots, maybe those uh, Afghan refugees might not be such a risk for us because they're going to be quarantined at the American and the European basis. So I assume that they'll be getting vaccinated with Moderna, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, not like us in Southeast Asia. It's all Sinovac. And, you know, the death rate in Indonesia about the workers who got Sinovac has been a little, a little crazy. But, yeah, uh, um, it's going to be tough um, looking at how our governments can absorb uh, the the refugees given the the conditions that uh, that we're in what do you think dina well this is pretty heavy you know i mean like all the podcasts we've had they've always been very been you know on very heavy topics but this one has a different weight to it because you're talking about abuse you're talking about people who are actually trying to seek a better life and then you find out like from adrian right there's a cyclical abuse towards what we are seeing right now. I'm just thinking, you know, my question to, my last question to Adrian, Susan would be that, where do we go from here? Yes, activists have to work hard. We have to lobby with politicians, with governments, but at times it does seem very hopeless. So what are the steps that we can take to make sure things get better? Yeah, so uh, in, in my opinion, if you look at the contribution of the of the migrant community and even the refugees uh, over the many years, if we if we use a very fair and just analysis in terms of their contribution to the global economy, I think they have contributed so much that during a time of crisis, we shouldn't be calculative and use use the resource that they help to produce to help them. This is not the time to, to compare uh, whether who deserves the priority to, to be helped first. Mm -hmm. I think it's very clear people who are in the most vulnerable conditions, uh, especially women and children, need, need to have access to resource. So governments need to have that honest conversation you have been benefiting from the hard work, the labor, the exploitation of the migrant community. Now's the time to use that resource back for them. And at a more micro level, I think, you know, people to people solidarity should be strengthened. The grassroots, of course, you know, it, it's a cycle of empowerment uh, leading to emancipation that will take some time. We need to be behind the leaders and, and support them throughout that whole cycle and you know then you will see uh, the the positive impact on the ground uh, a bit more what do you think toots what what can be done to help i mean what can civil society do to help uh, this really heavy situation our people are in it's you know we need to get as many conversations going i, I really believe in the power of dialogues 
And whether we're talking about Afghanistan or Syria or um, even our situation here in Asia, um, we're really the hot spot in, in uh, COVID right now. Um, we need to get conversations going about where the, where the world is mm-hmm. heading. Right now, we are in a state of, I think, um, reactionary uh, reflex yeah. Uh, yeah. kind of uh, responses. But we have to like take the leadership role and ask ourselves, how can we help each other? What mm-hmm. are the opportunities that can be had amid this pandemic? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, what really gets to me is that so many people are losing hope. And this goes beyond the world of migration. Mm-hmm. Um, before, when, when things are down, our people look for places to go to so they can earn. Now yeah. they cannot yeah. even leave their provinces. Right. right. They they are domiciled, and um, uh, everyone is you know really tired. We're all tired of this pandemic, but we need to you know somehow um, get our economies going and have a semblance of normalcy. So we need more dialogues um, on a positive on, on yeah. Hello. Okay. Yeah. Well, Susan uh, certainly is more right. Um, like and and yeah, just to to get us hoping again. Yeah, well, Tuts is right. I mean, the dialogue has got to be uh, continuing. Uh, yeah, especially. Actually, Dina, especially now that you're in a pandemic, I think this yeah. is the best possible time where dialogues right. are actually possible because you're all in your little cocoons trying to connect with each other. So, you know, the idea of, of dialogue, which is why we've got this podcast, right? This yeah. is a product of the pandemic. Without the pandemic, I don't know that that we would really have talking. started this. Yeah. Yeah, Adrian, you wanted to say something? Yeah, yeah. So the actually the 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 pandemic is something like a curse and a blessing at the same yes. time. And and why I say blessing is because uh, if you look at all the way the international organizations uh, have been operating, you know, very few grassroots get to participate physically in their meetings. Mm-hmm. But now with the pandemic and, and as the spaces have moved off online, right. The, the the possibilities are unlimited. Mm-hmm. How many grassroots can sit on a on a you know an online conference in a in an online meeting and share without that the the boundaries and limitations as before? Mm-hmm. And I think that is something we should take advantage to to you know to keep strengthening the solidarity between the north and the south, you know, mm-hmm. and also those who are who have been marginalized in terms of uh, joining or participating in such meetings, uh, this is the opportunity we we should all take and uh, make use of it. Well, it's been really quite a, an engaging discussion. Yeah. And I didn't realize uh, that how, how time has flown. 
But um, I was just thinking maybe we can ask uh, Toots and, and Adrian to give right. their words of encouragement to people who are in the situation that uh, we have been describing and words of encouragement to our listeners who might yeah. want to be of help. Yes. I think Susan would like to say something. Yes, Susan? Be more hopeful. Yes, Dina and uh, Amina and uh, Adrian. Uh, I just like to let people know that um, the, through the UN Voluntary Trust Fund to help victims of uh, human trafficking, uh, we can all contribute our share. And uh, uh, the trust fund uh, has um, opportunities for project grants. Oh, so good. NGOs um, are, are free to send their proposals. And oh. um, we have small grants and we also have uh, larger grants that will be coming in. And we, we continue to try to raise funds for the victims of human trafficking through the UN Voluntary Trust Funds. That, that's really encouraging, Toots. And right. I see Adrian's uh, interest perking. <laughs> yes. Your eyes on, yes. on Filipinos in Sabah, please, Adrian. Yeah. Yes, we hope Adrian, you are free to, to yes. <laughs> uh, send the proposal yeah. to us. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. I will. So, so my message to to everyone is, uh, you know, to stay strong during the pandemic, and uh, always uh, feel free to to nudge anyone, uh, whether it's your neighbor or whether it's an NGO or your, your right. the, the politician you are closest to. If you need help, uh, I think now is the time to you know, to open up our hearts, minds uh, a bit more uh, yes. to help people around and you not know, just be a bit more culturally sensitive to yes. to the migrants and foreigners around you. You know, they may not be so uh, brave to reach out for, for help, but there's nothing holding us back from mm. reaching out to them yeah. first. And, uh, you know, uh, let's, today is uh, Malaysia's National Day. Happy and, Happy National Day, and we we are reminding um, all Malaysians, you know, that you know, the, it's a it's a globalized world, and you know, while your passports and borders still play an important role, but let it right. not limit our imagination to social justice and human rights. Those are really really good uh, words to end yeah. our our podcast with. But you know, Toots and uh, Adrian are right. They're there are silver linings. There have been some positive steps. You know, Adrian, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Toots, but over 20 years ago, the Philippines was in tier in the tier three watch list. But civil society, I mean, led by organizations like the Ople Center with Toots and um, uh, Cecil's uh, organization as well, managed to push the envelope and get government to act I mean, in much the same way that you, Adrian, are, are doing in, uh, in Malaysia. But imagine if, if uh, Susan and Adrian could yes. link up and push the entire ASEAN yeah. region. So I am quite encouraged by, by that idea. I mean, I'm actually excited by that, by that idea. So yes, uh, what do you what do you think, Dina? I, I think it's good. I'm hoping that maybe later on, uh, in the future, 
we can actually do host a webinar or something where all these activists working on migrant issues, traffic issues, actually create policies and start lobbying seriously. Or at least, you know, uh, mentoring young people, you know, not just to be an activist, but real lobbyists to say, okay, this is how you do it, this is what you do, these are your achieve, uh, achievements, etc. I think that is greatly needed among the young, you know. But these are just my thoughts. I think we have, you know, overextended. <laughs> uh, can, I, can, I, can I just make a quick point? Sure. Uh, so I, I'm part sure. of the Malaysian delegation to the ASEAN Forum on Migrant Labour. Mm. And, and I've been part of the process from 2013-2014. When Malaysia hosted or became the chair of ASEAN in 2015, I'm, I'm very proud to say that I made sure that the organize actually allow a migrant worker to be in the meeting and sit on the panel and share. And of course, the Malaysian government was so proud to say that, yeah, we allow the migrant to come and sit. But uh, actually, uh, the migrants' voices are so important. The survivors of trafficking's voices are so important. We should uh, create that space for them to be on board. And I think the, the historical struggle uh, by, uh, you know, the senior activists in the movement does have an important role to play. For example, you can see the impact of the historical struggle of the uh, the labor movement on, on migrant rights uh, within the ASEAN framework. And I'll give you an example. So for domestic workers in Malaysia, their minimum wage is 400 US dollars. And that is actually much higher uh, almost 30 to 30 percent higher than the Malaysian minimum wage. So, so can you you can see the impact of uh, the historical struggle in in bringing changes. And I think that that you know looking back and bridging the different generations can can bring us more hope in looking for solutions in a very uh, you know in the post-pandemic. Uh, new norm. Yeah, thank well, you. Thank you very much, Adrian, and thank you, uh, Susan, for joining us uh, today on our podcast, She Talks Peace. I'm very sure that our listeners um, will, will take what you said to, to heart, and I am hopeful that there will be some young people out there who might want to do their bit to help this scourge of uh, human trafficking that affects everyone in the world, in the Middle East, uh, the Philippines. I didn't even know it was so bad in Malaysia until I started reading the reports. So thank you so much for, for joining us. Dina? Um, I learned a lot today from both our speakers. And uh, I want to say thank you. This is a global problem, you know, and... While there are some who are very, very, you know, very observant about this, there are also as many, if not more, who are very impervious to this or are in denial. So the work there is cut out for all of us. Um, I wish the both of you all the best. And please reach out to us and we'll do our best to help you and, you know, promote your work, your agendas and all. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. And uh, nice meeting you, Adrian. Same right. here. Nice to meet all of you. So, salam, you. everyone. Keep safe. See you all. Bye. 
She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.